Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Earlier today, prisoners held in Krabi Prison in Thailand rebelled, citing inadequate COVID-19 prevention measures. They demanded improved quarantine measures for those infected with the virus. Police shot at least 14 with rubber bullets, as prisoners burned a dormitory to the ground. 400 prisoners have been removed, leaving 1,700 still inside the prison. Malcolm Boatwright, age 28, died this morning at Bellevue Hospital after experiencing a quote-unquote medical issue at a jail facility on Rikers Island, according to corrections authorities. The city's medical examiner is currently probing the cause of his death. Boatwright had been in the Department of Correction custody for under a month. Boatwright's passing marks the 15th death of a person incarcerated in New York City in 2021, making this year the deadliest in New York City jails since 2016. Five of the deaths were suicides. Two of the 15 deaths took place outside of DOC custody because courts granted compassionate release before the detainee's deaths. In September, Isabdul Karim, age 42, passed away on Rikers Island due to health issues. While the primary cause of his death is unknown, his attorneys say he contracted COVID-19 while languishing in an intake area for more than a week. The next month, Victor Mercado, age 64, passed away at a hospital after contracting the virus, according to his attorney and a jail medical staffer. Over the last year, Rikers Island and other New York City jails have had hundreds of corrections officers call out sick or fail to show up to work. Authorities have been unable to carry out basic jail operations, including health care, as a result. Jail authorities say conditions have marginally improved in recent weeks as they've cut down on staff absenteeism and had to force fewer officers to work triple shifts as a result. Between July and November of this year, city jails saw an 11% decrease in use of force compared to the same period in the five months before. During this time, the jails also experienced a 12% drop in the assault rate against staff. The average stabbing rate also declined by 12%, according to Department of Corrections officials. We're sad to report that Russell Maroon Schultz, who was recently given compassionate release after his decades in prison, has passed away. We'll have more on this next week. And now we return to the second part of our conversation from last week, when we spoke about carceral nonprofits with Jean-Darka Corti and Jared Shanahan. Corti is a professor of criminology and criminal justice at Loyola University, Chicago, and Jared Shanahan is a professor of criminal justice at Governor's State University in Chicago. Jana and Jared are abolitionist scholars who research incarceration, and in recent years, their work turned to studying the reconfiguration of the U.S. penal system in the wake of the delegitimization of mass incarceration. They write that, Today we find ourselves in a unique moment of the penal crisis. Fear of crime does not register on a national level as it has in the past. At the exact moment, the historic injustices of mass incarceration have become a matter of popular anger and disgust. For example, quote, the conquest and burning of Minneapolis's third precinct in response to the police murder of George Floyd was a profound act of abolition, which established the political terrain in which the George Floyd rebellion has unfolded since. Unquote. 
But this growing chorus to end mass incarceration consists not only of abolitionists, but also liberals and some on the right. This conversation addresses the carceral nonprofits who steer radical change towards liberal reform and the promotion of carceral expansion under the guise of decarceration. These are not the small nonprofits adjacent to the criminal justice system that assist prisoners and their families meet basic needs. Carceral nonprofits may support various reentry programs for incarcerated people, conduct research about the criminal justice system, advocate for and fund various policy changes, and lastly, in moments of crisis, emerge as powerful advocates for the carceral status quo. Carceral nonprofits are lobbyists and foundations like the Vera Institute and Ford Foundation. State contractors redesigning jails, like the group Designing Justice, Designing Spaces, and even more private investors, like Arnold Ventures. Today's conversation looks at Jean and Jared's experiences in New York City and the campaign to close Rikers, a decarceration movement in which participants had to pick a side, the abolition or progressive reform. Here they are. The problem is not that these institutions are so horrible, but the problem is that they've lost legitimacy. Yeah, and to kind of uh, piggyback from that a little bit, I think what's also an important part of this legitimacy crisis is that we're kind of posed with two different models, right? One is the model of the carceral nonprofits, right, which we kind of define as not only nonprofits that are providing some type of service in terms of re-entry, right? They're not just the voluntary penal sector, right? So the third parties that are contracted by the state who can no longer provide these services, right? It's not, that's not just their role, right? Their role is actually to lobby for smarter jails, for smarter approaches to crime, for more humane forms of punishment in prison. And I think the way, one of the main ways they do that is through this embrace of technologically or scientific data-driven research. And actually, if we think a lot about this moment of crisis today, what we're faced with is folks that you know took to the streets during the George Floyd rebellion, folks that participated in riots and rebellions who organized before and after, right? So that kind of model, right? And like pushing for that versus the nonprofit, carceral nonprofit model, which is you know, the way in which we tackle social problems is by studying and coming up with uh, these policy solutions, right? So the idea, the notion is that we just don't ha have enough data, right? If the, we were just to have enough data, we will be able to solve these social problems. But of course, these nonprofits don't actually want to solve those social problems because to solve those social problems would entail, I mean, actual... <laughs> revolutionary moment, right? Going against the capitalist ruling class, right? These are not things that they're going to be emboldened to do, right? So a lot of it is driven by, you know, science, by data. So if you go to any of them, like all of these major nonprofits, which are driving a lot of the reform efforts, they've all embraced this data evidence-based research as a way to talk about reform, right? And, you know, in many ways, historically, that's not very different from how during the progressive era, right, or you part of the 20th century, you know, similar kind of organizing models were used, right? The idea was that if we just studied the poor, we could come up with solutions to help them, right? Um, it's just that now, decades later, as the state has completely abandoned poor communities and communities of color, these nonprofits have, you know, have taken center stage, right? So they're also part of the ways in which austerity has taken place in the United States, in which the state has really taken a step back, right, from its responsibility, whatever small responsibility it had towards the poor, right? So they fulfill these like numerous functions, but we want to particularly focus on the ways in which they're really pushing this embrace of kind of a more humane form of punishment. And I think to kind of give the point of austerity, you know, there's Vera, but I think of Arnold Ventures in particular, right, which is this major foundation that 
actually promotes a lot of criminal justice policy. You know, they fund different organizations, researchers to study different reforms. They're heavily invested in bail reform, right? It's just like really important for like folks that are like listening to really question, you know, these nonprofits who have vested interests in the capitalist system, be interested in reforming the criminal justice system, right? I think that's kind of like a big question. I was really struck by you phrased it as that prisons have become more porous in urban in these marginalized urban spaces. And so how you are describing this embrace of tech and this embrace of data-driven or evidence-based initiatives is really how you see this expansion from electronic monitoring or child protective services coming in and monitoring poor spaces that prior to that had been largely abandoned. And so this replacement of welfare state with incarceration, understanding exactly where that capital is coming from is incredibly important. It would be wonderful to look at your test case at the Close Rikers campaign uh, to see what's the difference between these progressive politics that are more aimed towards reform and an abolitionist perspective. I'm glad you brought that up, Bella, because that's the clearest example to my mind in recent history of these two positions standing side by side. For those of your listeners who don't know, the campaign to close Rikers really heated up following the incarceration and subsequent suicide of a young man named Khalif Browder. He was incarcerated for upwards of three years um, on bull charges. And prosecution was relying on the horrors of Rikers Island, as they so often do, to coerce him to plead out. Countless people before Browder and since have accepted this blackmail. Browder did not. And he he suffered tremendously for his courage and eventually took his life. Um, Now, this was not the first time that people had demanded the closure of Rikers Island. I like to think that the movement against Rikers Island probably began the first time someone was incarcerated there. In fact, the first recorded incarceration that I found on Rikers Island were um, a small group of lepers in the 1890s who were quarantined on Rikers Island, and they promptly jumped into the East River and swam away. (laughs) So uh, I like to think that the movement to shut down Rikers began then, if not sooner. But with Browder's passing and the publicity that he garnered both in his life and his death, there arose a great clamor to do something dramatic about the horrors on Rikers. And as Jana has emphasized so well, This was part of a national or international zeitgeist against the juggernaut carceral systems that have been built up amid the withdrawal of the social wage through neoliberalism. So this was only just one place where people who ordinarily have nothing in common politically were finding themselves agreeing that the the American prison system had gone too far. And Rikers Island was something of an avatar of how dysfunctional and cruel and nasty the American prison system has become. And so the campaign to close Rikers, as we came to know it, was in fact started by abolitionists under the banner of shutdown Rikers. It was a popular campaign and it was one of those issues, you know, if you're if you've ever done political organizing like this, you know, you're always throwing things out there. You're always you're always calling things. You know, I I know people who have called a general strike every year for the last, you know, half century, right? Every once in a while, you know, the 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 objective conditions, you know, catch up with your subjective radicalism. You know, we saw this with the Occupy Wall Street. 
We saw this in 2014. You know, it's a, every once in a while, right, people are picking up what you're putting down politically. This was one of those cases where the issue became very popular. And the local political machine in New York, which is far from a small town, sprang into action, chasing after the momentum of this campaign to close down Rikers, specifically the issue of Khalif Browder. And so you had the emergence of a nonprofit coalition called Close Rikers, which was funded primarily through um, an organization called Just Leadership USA, which is a, a Ford Foundation beneficiary to the tune of millions of dollars. And they built a large, vocal, and fairly effective media campaign demanding the closure of Rikers. Now, so far, so good, right? Full disclosure, I was involved in the campaign in its early days. I remember actually, I contacted Jana and I said, okay, I met these people. They want to close down Rikers. They invited me to one of their meetings. You know, I think I can help them with some of my research, but I don't know. They're like this big, fancy nonprofit. What do I do? Jana just said, well, as long as they want to close down jails, they're our friends. And then as soon as they want to build new ones, they're not anymore. <laughs> that, was the, that was the trajectory of our relationship. I was involved in the campaign for a little while. And soon enough, it wasn't enough for them to say, close down the jail and figure out what you're going to do with the people currently locked up there, which would be a belligerent response, right? The abolitionists uh, subsequently put together a whole plan for how that could be accomplished and how the, the jail could be significantly downsized. But so it wasn't enough for them to say, we demand that you close down the jail. They had to replace the jail with these carceral humanist institutions. And not only were they campaigning for the creation of new jails, they rolled out all the trappings of social justice. They even put together this, this workshop series where they brought together formerly incarcerated people and they they asked them, you know, what would a what would the perfect jail look like for you or whatever. I'm not sure if no incarceration at all was one of the options. I imagine that probably would have won if it was. So you had this oh, this Frankenstein's monster of this uh, this ten billion dollar jail expansion plan being pushed by these left talking emissaries of the Ford Foundation in particular in response to the widespread disgust against America's jails. And so it was really a moment when the the, the kind of true face of these carceral nonprofits was revealed for all to see. They don't like saying what they what they actually think um, and. It's to the great credit of the No New Jails campaign, um, which was a number of abolitionist activists, including some veterans of critical resistance, who uh, came together to oppose this plan. The No New Jails forced a lot of these, these nonprofits, Vera, Catal, Ford Foundation itself, to come out and actively oppose abolitionism and basically to defend widespread and systematic human caging, albeit with a humanistic sheen. Am I being too hard on them, Jana? No, I just wanted to add that I think an important part of the puzzle, and we unpack this a little bit more in our rebranding mass incarceration, the Lipman Commission part. I think what also ends up happening in New York in that way is really not unique. It's happening in LA as we speak, in Atlanta also, the fights against closing down the jails, is that these commissions and task forces are set up, which bring kind of like the creme de la creme of the nonprofit complex and let's be real, New York is a laboratory of reform. It is touted around the country as this signpost of decarceration, the New York City miracle, right? Like every city could replicate how New York brought down crime without increasing incarceration. So in New York, you know, as 
you had kind of this rift between the abolitionist and, you know, this just leadership, right? And these other nonprofits, you had the Lipman Commission, right? Which was spearheaded by this progressive judge in New York, progressive air quotes, right? <laughs> progressive judge in, in, in New York um, and brought together the Center for Court Innovation, brought together Vera, it, you know, all the nonprofits that have dedicated a lot of time to reforms. And, you know, in the words of Lipman was, you know, Rikers Island is a stain. I believe they called it a 19th century solution to 21st century problems, right? So it was like even kind of the more progressive wing of New York City governing elite was beginning to recognize that Rikers was not going to fly anymore, right? And what they proposed instead was to close Rikers and to replace it with these state-of-the-art neighborhood jails, right? Which invited in architecture, design, to create, I don't know, inviting spaces for people that are incarcerated. But it was really to kind of replace mass incarceration, which is being seen as racist, not humane, with a more humane system of punishment, right? So I think that was also an important backdrop is that you have most like liberal forces in New York supporting this move to close Rikers, but to not just close it, right, but to replace it with these state-of-the-art jails. And I think that was an important part too. John is completely correct that New York City it was a laboratory. It has always been a laboratory of progressive reform within the confines of what the ruling class is willing to allow, right? But simultaneously, it has also been a laboratory of austerity. And I think it's very important to understand the anti-carceral moment that we're in, in terms of austerity. It simply costs too much money. These prisons are a massive expense. And while they made sense as investments, in the immediate aftermath of the fiscal crisis in the late 1970s, throughout the 80s and 90s, when cities and states were struggling to clamp down on the disorder caused by widespread disinvestment in working class communities of color in particular, right? It may have been a sensible investment in, in that time when no politician would put a price tag on law and order, right? When law and order had a blank check, right? That it's it's reached a point where this is the expenses are simply too great. And in a place like New York, the repression has been achieved so successfully that at this point, there's more guards in the New York City system than prisoners. While these guards, they may be agents of law and order, they're doing the work of managing working class populations that was once done by the so-called welfare state. So in that way, they're necessary to the city's ruling class. But in another way, they're very expensive city workers and the, the city would love to get rid of them. You can make $100,000 as a, as a guard at Rikers in your mid-20s. And you know, the city would love to cut those costs. In your research and your fellow abolitionist researchers have observed that decarceration is really a strategic launch pad for abolition. And I think that's in part because it brings all of these perspectives who are ultimately in conflict with one another in agreement on this one point. And so you get this strange world where these like mass design groups are designing minimalist furniture for hotel room-esque jail cells at the same time as you get people who want to get rid of jails entirely just because they're too expensive. And at the same time, abolitionists are thrown in the mix. If this is the launch pad and we're kind of in this like borderland between progressive and abolitionist politics, where are we moving forward uh, to just kind of go back to the Close Rikers campaign and possible outlooks for abolitionists moving forward? I guess just before we talk a little bit about Rikers, 
It's happening more and more in large urban cities because that's where largely the reform efforts are taking place. So those clashes between like abolitionist, progressive forces, right? We're kind of seeing them come head to head in larger cities too, right? So like New York, LA, Atlanta, like in 2018, when Mayor Bottoms came into power, she came onto power with like kind of this like progressive era reform. She was going to end cash bail, like divert low level offenses. And she was most importantly going to close down the main detention center in Atlanta. So that became kind of an opportunity for like various forces similar to New York, abolitionists, progressives, nonprofits to kind of like struggle together around closing the jail, right? That fight is still continuing. <laughs> Mind you, the jail was built, I think, during the 96 Olympic Games, which tells us a lot about its role and function <laughs> at that time, right? So you kind of have a similar fight happening in Atlanta too, in LA. And ironically, the group that was called in to design these new facilities. So in Atlanta, they want to close down the jail. And now the abolitionist groups and the progressive forces are basically, from my understanding, working together to redesign something that's not a jail, that's going to be re-entry, that's going to be all these kinds of services that we can imagine not going <laughs> that way, right? And the, the main design architect that's being brought in is the same design architect that's like trying to reimagine the jail in LA. So I think it's just a really interesting phenomenon of just like how these major cities are really seeing these contradictions, right? These contradictions are unfolding in these major cities around jail construction, ending jails, but then abolitionists and some progressive forces who have come to the table to demand the end of jail are now being drawn in with the promises of, well, this is going to be a center devoted to re-entry and to wraparound services and kind of like, you know, being involved in like redesigning jail, you know? And I think that's something to kind of really be cautious about. And I'll just say, I think your observation about it being in large urban areas is is totally true. But even in Bloomington, Indiana, which is where KiteLine is based out of, there was a major decarceration campaign in response to a jail expansion planned by the county. And what ended up happening after the decarceration campaign ultimately won was several years later, the county put in a building for services. A mental health state contractor operated it. And it was a place that police could bring someone in need of um, mental health services or food as an alternative to immediate incarceration. And that didn't necessarily relieve the individual of any sort of criminal liability, which is the caveat that's that porousness of prison being expanded. And so it's a quasi jail expansion. It's an innovation. It's a way for these state contractors like, oh, I see these dollars. I know that we're going to face a lot of pushback from the community for jail expansion. But if we reshape it, if we repackage it, if we rebrand it so that it looks a little bit less punishment oriented, but is still ultimately carceral, it'll be more palatable. Yeah, I think in Atlanta it's called the Center for Equity. It's like the same idea, right? So it's like, it's about wraparound services. And I think that kind of takes away the fight from organizing for like free housing, things that are not this like tiny little cent, like what is this tiny little center going to do <laughs> for like Atlanta residents that are facing gentrification, facing policing, facing criminalization of poverty, right? And I think it's a really dangerous terrain, right? At least in Atlanta and LA, it's like the design process, right? Is asking abolitionists, progressive forces, like law enforcement, all these people to come together to say, well, how can we redesign this space to be better? I think that the takeaway is that being against jails and prisons just isn't enough. The plan that was put forward to shrink the New York City jail population, right, to create these new jails, on its face, decarceration, 
entailed increasing other corners of the carceral net, diversion programs, parole, supervision. And so you have the same amount of people, if not more people, embroiled in the meshes of the carceral net than you had in the jails. Instead of sitting in Rikers Island, you know, they're now in an open air jail. You can't really think about these programs as alternatives to incarceration because they often result in incarceration when you can't meet the draconian strictures that these programs require. And so we don't think that these so-called reforms that keep the same amount, if not more, people embroiled in this mesh of the carceral state, we don't think that those are serious alternatives. And this is where you need to have a political analysis. Speaking only for myself, if you look at what exactly these institutions are doing, they're fundamentally disempowering people. They're taking away from people the power to determine the conditions of their own lives. And what other institutions do they share that with? Let's talk about them. Social welfare institutions, the American education system, structure of wage labor under capitalism. So a serious alternative to jails and prisons is not simply shuffling people into another coercive and repressive institution of the state that is going to disempower them and run their lives in a different way, right? This is when we need to talk about how to actually build the capacity for people to determine the conditions of their own lives, to give people, give people power, uh, to give political power, social power. And, and to, to my mind, that's the only serious alternative to the carceral state. As the fight against mass incarceration gains more steam, becomes more popular, this is the terrain that we're facing, right? So it's really simple for people to say, well, this is really important, but we need to take up these reforms. We need to be part of this. This is what we need to fight. And I, I think the work we've been doing is to kind of like offer some political analysis, right? And to say, hey, like, let's think a little more clearly about what the interests what the different lines are that are involved. I think of Chicago in particular, right, which is where Jared and I are both in right now. And, you know, Chicago is like, yeah, all of these reforms have happened, right? And one of the main things has been, oh, let's reduce the jail population because of COVID in Cook County Jail. And what we've seen is like this crazy expansion of electronic monitoring, right? And like the sheriff guy is like, He's like, I'm a progressive guy. Like, I'm all about evidence-based solutions. And he's like spearheading this like crazy electronic monitoring program that's like costing people money that's constantly under the threat and guise of incarceration, right? As all alternatives to incarceration programs are. So I think this is like the terrain that abolitionists or whoever is against jail construction is faced with, right? And I think it's a very muddled terrain uh, because we're seeing millions of dollars being thrown at reforms. Important and huge foundations are now supporting the ending of cash bail. We need to really kind of come to terms with why this is happening, right? I mean, Vera, since the onset, right, of his foundations has been, has been fighting for bail reform, you know, and here we are decades later, like, you know, these foundations and nonprofits are still fighting for bail reform. So I just think it's kind of a really important moment to gain like political clarity about the role of these nonprofits. In that way, it's a really exciting time for abolitionists with this balloon of carceral debt that a lot of people are experiencing with electronic monitoring and also probation fees. We also see amazing initiatives like the one by the Debt Collective, which buys out carceral debt and was able to pay off $3.2 million worth of debt for tens of thousands of people 
in the South, uh, which was really exciting. And so while it does feel like that capital is running us ragged, we're also making really great gains uh, at the same time. So I wanted to thank you both for giving us such a close look at New York and also um, pointing to other places around the country where we're seeing the same confluence of politics and important nuances for abolitionists to pay attention to so that they maintain an abolitionist line and, and don't maybe get lured in in this yeah, dangerous terrain. We'll have links to the previous episodes with Corti and Shanahan on our website. And this conversation builds on previous KiteLine episodes with guests Maya Shenwar and Victoria Law, who wrote Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms, and Kelly Grace Price with Close Rosies, as well as Judah Shept and Nicole Siegel with Decarcerate Monroe County. If you'd like to read more on this topic after the interview, John and Jared's related articles are Rebranding Mass Incarceration, the Lipman Commission and Carceral Devolution in New York City, which appeared in Social Justice in 2018, Managing Urban Disorder in the 1960s, the New York City Model, on the Gotham Center for New York History's blog in 2020, and Carceral Nonprofits and the Limits of Prison Reform, which is forthcoming from ACME, an international journal of critical geographies. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.